Aloha Kako. You are listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for Pilina or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Aloha Kako ova ona ne loko inoa no papule wahumayao no mamo ili ili. Hello everyone, my name is Nanea Lo and I come from Papakulea Oahu, now residing in Mo'ili'ili. Mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. So this episode is in part of our Kupuna series on really Aloha Aina and place-based Mo'olelo told by our elders or our Kupuna Um and I am so excited for this second episode for our Kapuna series. And our guest that we have is Hoka Lainui. Hoka is a native son of Hawaii and, like others, was taught to love the U.S. enough to give his life in the war. Like his male siblings, he volunteered in the active U.S. military service. While in that service, he came upon... Hawaii Stories by Hawaii's Queen in 1970. He took a new direction, a commitment to break from the United States colonization and restore Hawaii's independence. He returned to the study of law after military service, earning a Jewish doctorate in 1976, where he returned to his Waianae community, which elected him in 1968 to the State Constitutional Convention. He then opened up his law office and pursued his work for Hawaiian independence. Polka has led his community's mental health center, integrating indigenous knowledge in treatment of mental illness, substance abuse, family services, and psychosocial programs, receiving honors and national recognition. He continues his practice of law, his radio and television shows, his writings and teachings, a bit of farming and Tai Chi Chuan. Um, he is a father of three, a grandfather of one, a husband of 50 years to Puanani Burgess, and constant advocate of human rights and fundamental freedom for all. Aloha, Polka. Mahalo for being on Native Stories. Um, so I wanted to ask, where are you from? And can you give us a story from when you were younger? I think to appropriately introduce myself and to answer your questions, I should maybe follow from my names and then move into the place that I come from. You see, when I was born, I was named by my parents Hayden Burgess, and uh, that was part of the colonization mentality that they absorbed to what we call Ho'ohaole, to act like the rest of the, the Howleys. And uh, I now go by a different name, <clears throat> and that name is Poka Lainui. And the result of that, or the, the change that occurred there, is that I am a student of a woman whose name is Pilahi Paki. And once when studying with her, I told her, I cannot trace all the way back my ancestry to find out where I come from, who my ancestors are. And the farthest I could go back was to a woman whose name was Poka, and that was my great-great-great-grandmother. And Auntie Pilahi choked, and she says, that's your name. I said, no, you don't understand, it's my great-great-great. And she says, no, you don't understand. (laughs) That is your name. And uh, so I said, well, she was married to a man named Lai Nui. And during that period of time in Hawaii's history, names changed so that people had to pick up a second name. So she picked up that name as well. So the same effect occurred with Antipilahi. She choked. She says, that's it. That is your name. I said, how do you know? She just kind of laughed. <laughs> she says, as soon as you utter the names, I am touched by the spirits, and I get this response, and they're telling me that this is. So it's a, a way of recovering from the colonial uh, damage that we have suffered to get back into a more ancestral 
approach to life. And so she said, you need to take that name if you are to proceed in life in the, in the uh, not the goal, but in the sort of the covenant that had been made for you. You see, in the Hawaiian tradition, <clears throat> we think our life begins at birth. But there are more than just the human body that comes to us. There's also the soul. And the soul being attached to a body, the question is, we can all understand uh, the biology of, a, of the cell uh, multiplication and the formation of a human body, but where does that soul come from? And that is something that is not created nor destroyed. It comes from an earlier time. It comes from ancestry, and it is these ancestors who have formed different reasons for placing one soul or two souls into each child as they are born. So the question, where do I come from, has two different meanings. From a Haole perspective, you come from your parents who birthed you in Honolulu or in Wainai or wherever it is. But from a more cultural perspective, where do you come from, is a question very much deeper and to understand that you need to go into what some people would call ho'oponopono not the style that is normally talked about today that originally comes from ka'u and uh, was that uh, anti kavina pukui made very popular through Liliokalani Children's Center but ho'oponopono has many different varieties one of which is to contact ancestors through people who are gifted with the ability to understand, to see, to discuss, to see the spirits around us, to see back into time or to see or to penetrate time itself. And so the question that you ask, where do you come from, to a person of this particular cultural background of uh, let's say then you have to ask or you, you inquire into many other things <laughs> who are your ancestors and oh, what is this agreement or sometimes we call it the covenant that had been made for you in your life and are you carrying out your covenant somewhat different from the Christian idea of you know God has uh, a plan for you. Do you understand the plan and are you living out the plan? Well, in the Hawaiian perspective, we would maybe slightly change it. It's not God. It's who are your ancestors who have placed you here and what is that covenant? So I don't mean to get too complicated into a cultural aspect of a question that is more a geographical question. But I think it's appropriate to give some depth to the question that you ask. Let me leave that aside and then turn to more the geographical question because I can go meandering all over the place and the discussion <laughs> will not be what you intended. No, I love it. It's, it's preaching to my soul. Um, all of our listeners at Native Stories know my little deal about I dropped my um, colonizer name a long time ago and I've stepped into and made space for you know, me as a Kanakamoli living in my ancestral land, so I'm totally relating. Okay. And, and I must say that it's not anti-Haole. Mm -hmm. You still respect that aspect of the name that you have, which is a reflection of family and the rest mm -hmm. today, but there is also that cultural aspect that also must be given credence. Yeah. Yes. And that's all I'm, I'm saying. Yes, like I definitely honor the time that you know, I had with that name, my old name, but I do feel that in order for myself to have grown and just step into who I am and honor my ancestors, um, utilizing my Olalo Hawai'i name, Nanea, has been so empowering and uplifting and um, paved way to so many opportunities that I feel that in 
not honoring that, I would have never stepped into this greatness. So, mm. yeah. Hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? No, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> your name being Nanya, uh, what is the meaning of the name? So, from my understanding, there's a bunch of different meanings. Um, it's like to relax, to cruise. Um, there's some interesting definitions in Vehe Vehe, which means interesting, and... Um, a few other things, but my, from what I know from my mom, them, my mom and my grandma or my tutu named me, but they didn't really want a long name. So that was the name that came to them, which is super duper funny to me because um, in life, I definitely feel that I embody that name. And before, when I was Jenna, I didn't really notice um, a lot of people named Nanea. And then as soon as I hmm. um, made the full switch over, mm-hmm. um, I was like, dang, there's a bunch of Naneas out here. So, I don't know, that's random, but yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. You know, names in, in the Hawaiian language uh, carries many more... Um, many depths to it Mm -hmm. other than just the like the howling name Mm -hmm. you know and at first you have the level of what is called ho'opukaku and that is just a surface level the dictionary description what does not mean yeah that's so i feel that i just know the surface level of my Mm -hmm. name but I feel like you're going to tell me more. So tell me more. <laughs> well, I don't know more. <laughs> First, I'm not an expert in the whole subject. Yeah. But there's a second level, which a lot of hula dancers and chanters would know, mm-hmm. and that is called the kauna level. Mm-hmm. The more the esoteric, poetic level to the meaning of nanea or relaxation. Yeah. So I feel like the more that... You know, I even listen to Mele Hawaii and like see other references in Mo'olelo um, written and whatnot. I feel like it makes me understand my name more than and see those different levels of kauna in it too. Okay. There's a third level, and that is called Noah Huna, and that's a secret level. That is a level of voice and sound. And the use of the very ancient gods of Hawaii, not Ku, Kanelono, and Kanaloa, but gods that predate these. And so when you deal with a word, the sounds that are contained in the word calls together different forces of nature, different gods, and the pronunciation of the word will have an impact. That's why they say that uh, for Hawaiians, when they use the word, the olelo, it has power. It is spiritual force. It puts it into action. So that's a uh, huna characteristic. So it's your name. You need to, it, you don't need to, it's up to you, but it's there for you to go find the meaning of that. Definitely. That's a challenge to me, and I will accept. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to our uh, discussion, uh, where do I come from? I come from a valley known as Lualuale. Other people pronounce it, not many people, but other people pronounce it as Lualuale, with a different forcefulness to it. And the information that I get that was passed to me was from a Papa Ephraim Makua, who lived in this area of uh, Makaha, which is in, encompassed by the, the mountain range from the Wainai Mountain all the way up to Nanakuli side. So that whole valley where you see the Lualuale uh, Naval Ammunition Depot and uh, farms there and Mao Farm and where I live and all of those things. That whole valley is so large that you could take the island of Kaho'olawe and put it right into that valley 
because of the size of that valley. And uh, I believe it. You've worked there at Mao. <laughs> you can see that valley. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, it is. And but the thing is, there's also this beautiful mountain that surrounds the valley. And uh, what is the mountains all about? Well, in Hawaiian belief, the mountains have the faces of gods on them, and the gods are constantly overseeing the land. The land is hot, kind of dry, and it has a reputation for, let's say, for farming. The produce that comes out of the land is very pungent, very strong, uh, is good produce. Yeah, when you smell the flowers that come out of this area, as compo- compared to other areas, there's a difference in the flowers. Uh, so the land makes a difference. There's this spirit, or what sometimes we call it the aka cords, that connect up to things that grow from the land. And this area is known for its resistance, its tenacity, its, to a certain extent, aggressiveness. The whole Waianae area is known for that. And some people just look at it as social economic statistics oh, because of the poverty here and because of this, this, and that. So the crime rate is high without understanding the historical, cultural, social effect of that history that this land pro- produces. It is a spirit of tenacity, it is a spirit of strength. And this is the kind of character that you have that comes out of this place, including the Lualule Valley. Oh my gosh, this is giving me just reflections on, on people and life right now. <laughs> the thing is that for many of us, we don't know that cultural historical side. And so when we respond, having been grown up and colonized into a Western model of thinking, we respond out of the structures or the instruments that this Western model teaches us. So when we try to evaluate the community, we just look at the negative social impact. We don't look at the cultural values within the community that can be lifted up. So we don't lift it up. And when people are fighting, when the Samoans are fighting with the Hawaiians and the Filipinos and all that stuff, and you get these gangs fighting against gangs, they are working out of the Western model of social interaction without fully appreciating the Hawaiian model. And so we need not only to be reflective of the place we come from and the surface level of what it means, but we need to look very deeply into who we are, where do we come from, and how do we create new models, new institutions uh, based on our understanding and try to reach back into our historical, cultural, ancestral treasures that we have and yet being careful not getting stuck in it and not understanding that the future belongs to us, not to our kupuna, not to our ancestors. So it is within us, but we need to use the background of uh, that culture, that values that we have as a springboard into our future. So sometimes when you go to a Ho'oponopono session by uh, anyone who is going to appropriately instruct you, they say what you need to do is allow all of it to come in through one ear, but you have to flush it out and decide what to keep and what to throw away. Don't listen to everything and because so-and-so said so, or because your kupuna said so, and it's garbage, you're going to keep it because it's kupuna. No, you throw it out because it's garbage. So (laughs) it's your thinking mind (laughs) that has to be active. And the thinking mind will 
invoke a feeling heart as well. Sometimes you cannot realize or you cannot distinguish or dis, uh, draw a discretion between what is right and wrong. But in the gut, you feel it. Don't over-intellectualize. Follow the heart. Yes, I feel like you've touched upon a lot of things um, that actually like a lot of people talk about on Native Stories too, but I like how you talk about, you know, we have to use these cultural treasures of our kupuna and ancestors and make them our own and, you know, that's who we are. We need to be innovative. Um, I resonate with that because I have a lot of conversations um, with my mom about... Um, different things, you know, what's happening now in the Hawaiian community, um, what happened back then with her history. And a lot of times, I feel that because she's been indoctrinated and she's slowly unlearning because I'm unlearning and she's on this journey with me, she likes to reference a lot back to, well, we can't be how, you know, we can't go live in huts and that kind of thing. And I'm like, Mom... That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying open, like, be open and receive. Like, look at how much Hawaiians there are. We're, we're coming all different shapes and sizes. We've moved on from that era, and we are in 2020. And it it's not going to be the same as before. And it may never be, but we are still Kanakamoli, and we're, you know, spearheading through in the future utilizing the resources that we have the community that we have um and so that's what we really have to you know cultivate and cherish i don't know just want to share that there's so many uh hurdles to have a person overcome their colonization and one of which you have just uh, touched on, and I too went through the same thing. You see, back when I was in the military, I was in the Air Force, and while wearing the uniform of the Air Force and uh, working at uh, Hickam Air Force Base, I came across a book, and it was called Hawaii's Story by Hawaii's Queen. And as I read that, it disclosed to me the history of Hawaii that I really had not known. This was 1969, 1970, 1971, okay? Nobody talked about Hawaiian sovereignty. Nobody talked about the overthrow. It was not, not only talked about, nobody knew about it. And then I went through another book, Lawrence Fuchs, Hawaii Pono, and then he describes the social events that occurred. Now, I was a participant in uh, politics from a early age, from my early age, when I was about 18 to 20. I was elected as the delegate to the Constitutional Convention of 1968, representing this area of Waianae. So reading Lilio Kalani's book and then reading uh, the second book, and then comparing my experience in 1968, I started asking myself, what is the future of Hawaii? And I became so upset about the Americanization, I became very angry, and I planned to kill Americans, to blow up institutions, blow up the building, just get rid of these Americans, get them out of Hawaii. But I came to another understanding that they would be unsuccessful. And the most I could get was my own death, and I wouldn't make any real changes in Hawaii. But if I could return to law school and get into their system and explode the system from the inside, not with bombs of destructiveness, but of truth, of history, of law that they could not deny, and now with a law license, I could say things that they could not shut me up. And so that was a path I took. Now, moving back to this relationship between parent and child, my father was a very strong, um, patriotic American citizen. He came out of the Second World War, and uh, that was part of his lifetime. And uh, so was my mother and my, all my brothers who went into the military 
all came out very patriotic. So to have a son try to teach a father about the illegalities that had occurred, the criminality, the cheating, the lying, and all of that dastardly things that had been done to us, it's difficult. For sons to teach fathers, almost impossible. For daughters to teach mothers, almost impossible. (laughs) Yes, and I... (laughs) The listeners know, because I talk about it in my conversation, because I feel like that's the only real way I know how to do um, an interview, is you know talking about my lived experiences. Um, I feel, yes, indoctrination and unlearning, it brings up so many different levels. And I have one friend, she's a diaspora, Kanakamali. Um, she's been living in Hawaii for school maybe like four years now, but... You know, what I've learned, too, is, like, everyone is going to, they're walking their own path, um, and they're going to learn when they're ready to learn. So all I can really do is be supportive, do what I do, and hopefully something I do resonates with them and, you know, ignites something in them Mm -hmm. to know why and what is their why. Um, But she would ask me all the time initially when when we first met, like, can I teach her, you know, how to be like me, like how to know? And I'm like, sis, this is years in the making, okay? This is not just like a couple months and boom, I know all this stuff. Like, it's literally a mind shift and it's all about relations, about relationships and the people that you encounter every day. Um, And so, yeah, what you're saying totally makes sense and I'm, I'm sure it's making sense to other um, listeners out there especially for people like me who's you know first generation of unindoctrination and you know what I mean and like they do have these hard conversations with their makua so mm-hmm. what I've found in my particular case and of course people have many different experiences but I was also involved in a lot of advocacy work at that time and uh, so my dad couldn't understand, but he saw something change. The society was now talking about sovereignty. Uh, they were talking about the illegality of the overthrow. My father remembered Queen Liliokalani. He saw Liliokalani. So it was not something so far away that he could not reach into his past memory. And his associates in the Waianae area uh, were of that age. We had Papa, Ma, uh, Papa Makua, as I've already talked about. We had uh, Papa Kala Hikiola, who he was associated with. We had, uh, what was his name? Papa Aila, also from Waianae. And these are old-time Hawaiians. Then there was uh, Tutunalu Simeona. And they remembered the older times. And so at least he had a foundation to choose from. But he also heard other people talking about the issue of sovereignty. And so what happens is that it's not only one person trying to teach another person, but what we do is we create a society of people talking about creating new languages and new uh, narratives in the discussion. And so it's not only my responsibility, but it's everyone's responsibility to participate in the decolonization of the minds of our people. So after seven years, before he died, my father understood, and he said, oh, now I understand what you're talking about. So I guess it takes, to some degree, some patience and uh, to see that this is a matter that we all need to share the the continuing strive for Pono. You know, Pono is a goal that we should always strive for. At times, the nation has fallen uh, and seems like the direction of the nation is taking us away from Pono. The illegality of the overthrow, that is certainly not Pono. The imposition of a different culture, of a different political system, of a different economic system over Hawaii, that is not Pono. But it's not for us to squawk about that, but not lose sight of what Pono is. Always be good 
be appropriate to one another. And don't let it separate even the idea of racism, where we only regard the Poe Hawaii, or what today's term is Kanaka Maoli, and we can talk about that term later on. But only the Poe Hawaii. You know, I used to walk these streets or these roads. They were not even streets. There was no sidewalks. They're just plain roads without sidewalks. <laughs> all the way up from where I live at Puhulu Road, all the way to Waianae and back. Hot, uh, dry, no more slippers, your feet sore when you're walking. <laughs> Sounds like I would die. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like you're going to die at times. And then cars would come by, they pass by, or they stop and pick you up. There was one Japanese man. He was a farmer who lived a little up from me. And his name was Uyara Mori. And he would stop by and he would say, How are you, boy? I says, Okay. He said, You like a ride? I said, Yeah. So he jumped in the car and then he started taking me up to my house before he reaches his house. And he would get into these very small conversations. But one of the statements he made that uh, has always stuck with me, he said, whatever you do, be a man, you know, stand up. Stand up for your principles. He didn't use the term porno, but he said, stand up for what is right. So I look back, this farmer who had been in the Second World War, a member of the 442, and just that short statement of a moment in my life has meant so much to me. So that also helps me to reflect because I'm a proud Hawaiian. But what really does that mean? So it forces me to at times look in the mirror and not to be prejudiced and to be hono. The second incident was at the old, uh, what is was called the new Waianae Theater, the new theater. That is where uh, McDonald's is at today. And there used to be, it used to be an open-air theater, okay, no more roof. And uh, the ground was just uh, black asphalt, and they would have benches <laughs> to watch nobody. We would stand in line outside, all standing in line, go buy the ticket, and then go inside. Coconut trees all around it. The coconut trees actually come from Pokai, who brought coconuts to Hawaii. And his coconut grove was right in the back, the old, the new theater where the Hongwanji mission is. And, you know, there's a stream, the Wainai stream. And from there, it stretched all the way down to the Wainai Elementary School of Coconut and Banana and his place was famous for that. Some people say that he was the one who brought coconuts to Hawaii about five, six hundred years ago. Okay, so he comes from Kahiki, uh, a foreign place. So where we look at the beach now, we call it Pokai. That's a misnomer. The, the, the name of Pokai is further back. Okay, but we'll get into that maybe some other time. But I'm standing in line waiting for my ticket to go into the movies and uh, it's supposed to be a good movie and there's people standing in front and in the back of me. I just graduated from high school. And this guy in the front of me, a Japanese man, kind of short, old, and his name is Larry Kamada and he was a postmaster for Waianae. And at that time, uh, the post offices were very important and everybody knew. And he was very active in... Uh, community activities along with several others. I had been active in community activities because I was uh, president of the student body at Waianae when I graduated and I had been a participant there. So he had been somewhat familiar with me. 
So knowing that I graduated, he turns around in line and he says, okay, boy, what are you going to do now? I said, oh, uh, uh, I'm going to join the service. And he says, what? I said, yeah, I'm going to join the military. <laughs> he said, you know, that's the problem with all you stupid-ass Kanakas. I says, what? Said, yeah, you folks stupid. You don't go to school. And I, I got angry at him. And he says, you always say you're going to join the service. You never get to school. You say you're going to depend on the GI Bill and go take you a long time before you finish college. And he just shakes his head and he turns around in line. <laughs> I'm pissed off with this guy. <laughs> and, and so a lot of stuff coming through my mind of what I, I should tell him. But I shut my mouth. And then I figured, you know, this guy right. I had planned on going into the service. My brothers all went into the military. They're kind of smart guys, but none of them went to school. They always say, oh, yeah, I go to school later on. None of them went to school. So that changed my views, and I decided, no, okay, I'm going to try and go to University of Hawaii. And so from Waianae, I attended the uh, University of Hawaii for four years. I had a hard time. My background was in uh, was from Waianae High School. We had good teachers, but we just didn't have the comparative training that we had with other schools uh, in Honolulu. And so what I had to do was learn something that I had never learned before, and that was discipline. Just sit there until your okole is sore before you move. You sit, you read, you study, you learn. Don't go down to the pool halls. Don't go down to the movies. Don't go down to nightclubs or anything like that. Just sit and study. Because the pressure is on. I come from a family of 10. And I'm one of the youngest to get out of high school and then now go to college. And... I could not withstand the shame, the hila hila, of flunking out and being the representative of a family. And so I managed to stay in school. At the beginning, it was kind of hard, but I keep studying and stayed in. And, and uh, so I eventually graduated from the University of Hawaii in 1968. And during that period of time, the Vietnam War was occurring and all that stuff. And uh, so I, I'm sorry for meandering out of the Waianae area. I'm trying to pull myself back in. <laughs> but I've always been very interested in political affairs. And so I ran for political office. I was one of the first to ever run, or the youngest to ever run. I was 18. I had just made 18. And the laws had changed so that people at 18 years old could vote. Previously, it was 20. So I ran for the school board. The school board became an elective board. And so I ran against a person who was already on the school board previously, and I lost. But I had sort of pulled together among people that had known me from high school uh, a group so that the next two years, in 1968, when there was a state constitutional convention... I ran to represent the Waianae area. And there were, of course, uh, several others who ran against me, but I was able to win that race. And so I represented the Waianae area in 1968. I still didn't know very much, but at least I was able to sit among those people whose history dates back to the period of time that Lilio Kalani and Lawrence Fuchs is writing about. And so I'm sitting there and listening to all of this interesting kind of stuff, but not having really formed or matured my understanding, still being a loyal American citizen. Then I went off to law school at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. I was supposed to have worked with the office of Dan Inouye, but when I got into school, they said, well, all first-year law students are not permitted to work. So I had no money. I had just gotten married to 
poor nanny, and uh, we had moved up. And she got a little bit sick. We had no money. The weather was very bad. With cold, we never saw snow before. <laughs> so I came back home, and then I joined the military, and that's where I changed my views from uh, from that event. So I've taken you through some travels. Yeah, how long were you in uh, Washington D.C.? It's crazy because I actually came back uh, from George Washington University. Like, I literally was there for spring for school. Oh yeah, well, I was for a very short time, just maybe about two or three months, and uh, I couldn't uh, manage the finances or the weather for more than a semester. So I came back and then I joined the military. After joining the military and then reawakening a different part of uh, myself and becoming committed to the the decolonization of Hawaii by getting Americans out of Hawaii, I decided I needed to go back to law school. And so when the University of Hawaii opened its doors, I was able to get in among the first uh, students in the first uh, class at the university. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, I was only there for a semester too because I was a part of a program, but man, if any Kanakamoli or like the ones want to go to Washington, D.C., it'll really make you reevaluate and how awesome the Pai Aino Hawaii is because, yes. <laughs> yeah, so there's been, uh, of course, some travels here and there and different parts of my life. But again, because of this interview, uh, trying to stay to place, <laughs> I'm trying to locate it to place uh, and, and stories of place. Antipilahi would say that there are three levels of conversation. And the way she puts it is Olelo, Valao, and Kuka Kuka. Olelo, she classifies it as when people talk about other people. Essentially, it amounts to nothing more than gossip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you know somebody so-and-so, and then he's seen so-and-so. It's all gossip. Okay. Valao is when you connect people to things or activities, but it's still gossip. And then she went to his party, and then he was mad. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she says, but when you hit kuka kuka, you're talking about ideas. You're talking about dreams. You're talking about values. And she says, do not waste people's time. Don't deal in gossip. Whenever you talk, talk about the important stuff. Always reach the level of kuka kuka. Otherwise, you're wasting people's time and they're wasting your time. So don't do that. Yeah. So I'm trying to find stories that connect to place but also will carry values with them. So let me tell you a story. Okay. Okay. I feel like anything that you share with us is just steeped in levels and lessons. <laughs> Hold your judgment there. So, Tamura Store. Many of us know Tamura Store. It grew up with us. I, when I was a small kid, it was way down where the, the other side, uh, where is it now? Uh, this store that sells liquor right across... Uh, the Army Rest Camp. You know, they changed the name of the uh, Army Rest Camp to Pililaau Army Rest Camp. Why? Because there was some shooting. Because we don't like the idea that they would take the best beach on Oahu for them, for the military, and then all us locals cannot go on that beach. There's some friction there, and as a result, there's some uh, events there. Uh, I think a soldier was killed and other kinds of stuff. So more recently, the name was changed. They won't admit to it, but the name was changed to Pili Laau Army Rest Camp in honor of uh, Herbert Pili Laau, who grew up in this Waianae area and was 
sent to the Korean War and became a Medal of Honor winner because he committed, he gave his life and he killed a lot of North Koreans as they were trying to come out and take over his uh, fellow troops. So they gave him a medal. They named a park after him, Pililao Park. And now they named this stolen land, Communist <laughs> Camp, for Pililao. So that's some of your place history. <laughs> but I'm talking about Tamura's store, not in the old days, but in the modern times. But in the, regardless of how often they have moved, they have moved three times in my uh, short life. The ground is all what we call puka puka, uh, pot holes in it. And you got to watch how you walk until more recently they fixed it. But before that, I'm sitting next to Khalil. And I'm not sitting, I'm standing next to him, next to the store. And Khalil says, hey, bro, you notice how people walk? I say, yeah, I noticed that. Look, some people, when they walk, they're looking at every step that they take, you know, as if they're going to fall down or they're going to broke their knee or something. They don't like falling uh, or stepping in the potholes, especially the old folks. They're watching every step there and they're looking down. Yeah. And then he says, and you notice the other people, they're looking around, they're navigating around cars. They don't want to get hit. So they're looking at a longer distance. So their walk style is a little bit different at a longer distance. <laughs> Yeah, I noticed that too, brother. And then he says, but you know, there's some people, when they walk, look at them. They're looking at clouds. They're looking at mountaintops. They're looking at sky. They're looking so far ahead that it's as if they're not paying attention to where they're walking, where they're stepping. He said, yeah, I noticed that too. So he says, brother, what is the right way to walk? What is the right way to walk? And I said, hmm, well, let's see why they walk this way. One, they you know, can broke their leg, you know, or they want to make sure that the things that they need to meet will be met immediately. Some people looking at a little longer distance that's why they're looking farther away. It's just like people, you look at every day, what is the next hour, what is the next day, make sure you get food on the table, you walk very carefully and you watch your actions. Okay? Other people are planning, gee, 10 years from now, I don't want to be doing the same farm work, or I want to be doing other work. How am I going to make the change? Maybe i got to go to school. So they're projecting into the longer distance. And then you have other people, when they walk, they're looking at skies. The dream. So far ahead. They ask themselves, what will Hawaii be a hundred years from now? So the question that you ask me, what is the best way to walk? And as I reflect on it, I would have to ask, is that the right question? Or maybe we need to be satisfied with allowing each person to travel in his own way, based on his own circumstance. And yet, maybe our responsibility is to make people aware that there are other ways of walking. To the extent that we can unite and understand that we're walking in the same direction, let's do that. But even though we have different styles of walking, doesn't mean that we are walking against one another. We have different expressions of seeing things, different circumstances in which we respond. But always respect different styles.
my goodness. I feel like that touched upon a lot of the ending questions that I was going to ask you anyways about, um, yeah, how do people get involved in the call to action for them? And then what do you envision um, for the future for the Lahui and the Hawaiian Kingdom? Um, That just articulated everything because, yes, that, like, the more that I get older and um, really think about, you know, what is my kuleana? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have to also, like, I feel like one of the biggest lessons of patience and just lessons for me is understanding that. Like, understanding that, you know, everybody doesn't get it sometimes. One day they'll get it. But I just have to appreciate the lessons of what they're giving me and how am I going to understand that and make myself better. The only person that I have control over is myself. So in doing that, yeah, just exactly what you said. (laughs) Well, uh, let me share one more story with you. It's not place-based, but I think it's relevant to our discussion. I ran for trustee to the Office of Hawaiian Affairs and was fortunate in getting elected. And so I served from 1982 to 1986. There was some controversy about my service when uh, we were asked to uh, sort of being sworn in, and they had a big ceremony at uh, at the state capitol. Yes, tell us the tea. <laughs> well, they they asked us to stand and raise our hands and pledge our allegiance and to the American flag and to support the Constitution of the United States. And it was a big public event. I just sat. I refused. So everyone else was standing up, and then it became quite obvious. And I told, I, I said, I told you folks, I'm not here to serve the American Constitution. I am here to serve the Native Hawaiians. That's my obligation. And I'm not a U.S. citizen, and I will not swear allegiance to the United States. So anyway, they threatened to take my uh, license away. Not, not my license, my position. When the Attorney General said, well you don't uh, conform, we'll take a seat away. I said, you can't do that. She said, why not? I said, because you never voted for me. I was elected by the Hawaiian people. So don't give me this crap that you're going to take my seat from me. Anyway, I served four years. They never took it from me. But during that time, I was somewhat among the more controversial because I was I took a strong position that we are not Americans, we are Hawaiians, and we need to operate that way. Subsequent to that, I met a lot of others who were always on the opposing side, who was the majority. And one guy who was the chairman, he said, you know, Poka, had I known today what I knew, or had I known back then what I know today and what you were talking about I would have been supportive of you but I just didn't know I didn't understand and I was a younger of this group so naturally they wouldn't accept what I said but the story I wanted to tell you was a letter that I got from a person who I had never met and he came at that time I think he was addressed from Waimanalo this kupuna writes to me and at that time, I operated under the name Hayden Burgess. He says, Mr. Burgess, you have a problem. The problem is that you do not understand Kuleana. He says, your obligation, your Kuleana, is to gather the facts, gather the arguments, Present the facts and the arguments as clearly and as convincingly as you can. And after you have done that, step back. The ability to change an individual's mind is not your kuleana. 
It is the kuleana of God. So, the idea of presenting as genuinely as you can, but learn to step back, let it go. There's a sacredness in those moments in which a person will reach his or her own conclusion. And what we need is for the Hawaiian movement to reach that conclusion. So at times we get frustrated. We want to pound this information into the society. But let us realize that the society came out of a colonization process that was so long, so deep, that we have lost the connection with our kupuna. We cannot speak the language of our ancestors, and even if we did, the values, the technology, things have changed so much that we ourselves need to learn to be patient. Not to just let it go, not to sit back and not care about it, but like the word Ho'omanawanui, is not to just sit on your okole and do nothing. Ho'omanawanui means to prepare. Get ready. Make sure that when the society is ready to flip, they're not going to flip into craziness. So it's our responsibility to begin the forecasting. And when I say our, it's all of our responsibility. Okay. So it's not good enough just to understand the history of Hawaii, to understand the details, what happened in 1893, how many military landed, were the Blue Jackets or were the U.S. Marines, what did they land with, and what did Lilio Kalani do at this time, and what did Cleveland say? We already know the story. The story is there. They cheated, they lied, they stole. We don't need all of the details or be caught up in those details. They're interesting, but that's it. What we need to look at, where are we today, and we need to project into our futures. We need to become the prophets of our future. We need to change the vision of who we are. We are not just everyday people living today and watching things pass by, like in a movie. We ourselves today are historical figures. Yeah. When I die, you will remember me as a historical figure. When you die, your children, your family will remember you. Treat yourself as a historical figure. Honor yourself and participate not only in where you at now, but in projecting into the future. Ask yourself, what is it that I want Hawaii to be? Not just knee-jerk reaction about, oh, why are you guys doing this? Why are you doing that? Etc., etc. But you need to come out with visions, with plans, and share these plans so that other people can see it and they can participate in the dream of Hawaii. I wrote a paper uh, back in about 2010, and I, it was the 2035 edition of the Traveler's Guide to Hawaii. Asking myself, what will Hawaii look like 25 years from now? Because maybe I'm not going to live for 50 years, but 25 years, that's okay. <laughs> so I write about the future of Hawaii and how we became an independent nation and what we needed to change, our values needed to change, and our economic system needed to change, our environmental system needed to change. But what I'm doing is I'm participating in the prophecy of Hawaii and trying to share it so that other people can either buy in or say, no, that's all bullshit, I have a different problem. But join in the community prophesizing. And that is the way we take back control instead of conceding to the United States our self-determination. And it begins with our dreams, our visions of what we become. That is what decolonization is all about. Yes, preach. 
Yes, I totally believe in manifestation and affirmation, and that's one key factor or reason why I always want ask people on what do they envision the future of the Lahui and the Hawaiian Kingdom to look like, um, because you know I feel that our dreams and our visions and our futures needs to be shared, and you know. Listening on this podcast and the app, the mobile app of Native Stories, it's affirmation not only to the Lahui, but you know sometimes on these journeys of um, reconciliation about who you are and your identity, um, you need these small little gems um, from people who you don't know to have that affirmation within yourself to affirm the bigger picture and beyond. So, yeah, mahalo for sharing that. I know time is passing, and I don't mean to rush it, but before I close, I'd like to invite people to visit my website, and that is at www.hawaiianperspectives.org. And I have a lot of uh, documents that I have written and other people have written. And go to the documents. It's under resources or documents, and one of it deals with the future of Hawaii, in which I contain the document on uh, the 2035 edition of the Traveler's Guide. And if you want to send me your vision, then I can post it, and, you know, we can share in a joint vision. There's many other documents that you're welcome to visit, but visit my website and communicate with me. One one last thing I wanted to comment on, and that is the question that you had, the future of Hawaii, the future of the Kanaka Maoli, uh, and uh, Native Hawaiian people. I have a different understanding of the term Maoli. And I have that understanding based on my discussion with many of the very old Hawaiians when I would say, what is a Maoli? And the response I got is, it is a person who is original, it is a person who is upright. It is a person who is civil. It is a person who is hono. When we take those values and we try to attribute it only to a particular race, as if it's reserved to a race, I find it's what I call anoe. It's not comfortable. I have seen, I have come across many Pilau, Native Hawaiians, and I think the term Kanaka Maoli attributed to those Native Hawaiians is inappropriate. I have seen many very honorable Japanese, Chinese, Haole, Puerto Ricans, etc., etc. So the term Kanaka Maoli has a different meaning for me than, and I understand the popularity of its term being an attribution to a race. Okay, I see it so, somewhat differently. So that's point number one. <laughs> <laughs> point number two, the future of Hawaii and the term kingdom that you use. I am not wedded to kingdom because it suggests that we need to take from the past and create out of the past. I think that's not what the past has, has left for us, to mold from that past. I think they left something else for us, and that's a springboard into a self-determining future that can be either in the form of a kingdom, or it can be, because some of us may decide, I don't like kings and queens. I support more the egalitarian move of Hawaii. Okay? And I can explain the elitist and the egalitarian principles of uh, governance, the elitist, where you have the alis being the king and the queen and all that stuff, and all us makainana and the kawa are all below. But there has been a trend towards democratization, a trend towards egalitarianism. And you can see very early in 1840, the Lua Ehu Constitution, when it says, uh, God has created among all of us, among all bloods, all religions, all places equal before the law. So 
you can see that democracy was moving in and more people were voting now and all this. So we voted for our, uh, at least for one or two kings, okay? But I see that as a trend. I believe that the future of Hawaii is self-determination. But we need to have people of Hawaii to join together in formulating what is the future. How do we form our governance? How do we form our values, our relationship to the environment, our economic system, all of those things? Today, we need to reflect. We have a system that is ingrained in our society that is based on three values, domination, individualism, and exclusion. It's called what I call the deep culture of die. D-I-E. Domination, individualism, and exclusion. And it's killing us off. It's killing our environment off. It's killing, killing our human relationship. It's destroying our economic system. It's destructive. Our educational system is built on die. You don't educate. You just see who uh, memorized something faster. They, in their brain, they had a better tape recorder. On the other side, we have another value system. It's called olu-olu instead of domination. It's a more comfortable working relationship, softer. Instead of individualism, it's lokahi. We all need to work as a together. Not this guy is a king or this guy is a leader. No, we all need to create a society where we all can move together in agreement with one another. And instead of exclusion, it's always aloha. We don't exclude people. We try to include with a sense of compassion or friendship. And yet, aloha has two sides. It also has a protective side. So that's O-L-A, olu-olu, lokahi, and aloha. Ola. So on one hand, you have dai as a deep culture, and on the other hand, the option is ola. What we need to do is we need to start creating ola as a central culture, as a majority culture, to control all of our systems. We need to think about it and invest into our political system, our education system, our economic system, our human relationships system, the social services system, mental health system, physical health system, ola, 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 so that people can and things can begin to grow. That is a foundation of any government that you create. If you don't start working at the deep culture level and you just try to create structures, then all you do is repeat the die system. But if you're really talking about decolonization, to have a government that is expressive of our values, you need to look at what are those values, what are those dreams. We can go on and on, but I will stop at this point. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of my ideas with you. Mahalo, 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 mahalo for coming on Native Stories and sharing with us your Ike Mo'olalo about, you know, your life and where you've grown up. Um, This is just amazing because I just have so many connections of everything that you shared with with us. So, yeah. Um, But... Yes, mahalo for coming on Native Stories and sharing um, and being our second kupuna on our kupuna series. So exciting. Um, maybe we'll have your wahine come on too. <laughs> um, yes. 